This morning, you know, we're going to continue in our series on prayer for the past uh, month, uh, the month of January. We sort of set it aside and we did a series on prayer, and God has providentially provided a little extra opportunity to pray during this time, uh, I think two weeks worth of snow that kind of disrupted our normal activities, but I want to encourage you, um, as the Lord has encouraged me, is to not be frustrated by those things, but to uh, allow him to use those times to lean into him. Um, and I think one of the, uh, you know, we, we're talking about prayer, um, and so it was a great opportunity for us to practice that prayer, amen, and just lean into him. And so I also don't know who it is that has been praying for snow, but can you please stop? <laughs> like, I literally said that in the first service, and I was talking about how, like, in the weather, it was even talking about snow like five days ago on Sunday, and I was going, no, no snow on Sunday, you know, and it snowed in between services, like I'm looking outside and it started snowing, it's not anymore, but um, so anyway, stop praying for snow, or like pray for it on like a Tuesday or something, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so uh, this morning though, we're, we're technically going to be in our final message uh, in the prayer series, but honestly, it feels kind of wrong to say this is our last sermon on prayer, right? Like the whole point of what we've learned about prayer is how extremely primary it is and even how layered it is. Like it's not something that you do and then you just kind of put it away for another time, right? Like it's something that you do with intentionality, yes, but when you really pray, like when you really tap into the heart of God, it grips you, right? Like when you lean into him and you begin to pray to him, he will grip you and bring you in deeper into his heart. Because prayer goes from something then that you're supposed to do to something that just naturally flows out of you. Like, yes, it's still something, and it will always be something, I think, on this side of heaven that we have to do with intention and, and discipline, right? But it also can become something that begins to just flow out of us as naturally as breathing. And I think that's what prayer is. In many ways, it's like breathing. Like the heart who has a revelation of God has also the revelation of their complete and total dependence on God. They realize that communion with him is the very fundamental sustenance of real, true, abundant life. So when I'm talking about prayer now, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about people um, who are praying, you know, when we say naturally pray, like people that just flows out of them, and they pray naturally, you know, I'm not just talking about people that are good at speaking out loud in front of other people, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, see, sometimes that um, people got to get this confused. They think that just because somebody's able to fill the air with a lot of words, that that means that they must be a mature Christian, right? Like, you know, Often people who are naturally verbal processors have, you know, no issues praying out loud in front of others. While those who are more internal, they struggle with this, right? But don't make the mistake that believing that prayer is about filling the air with words. There are people that kind of are, are internal processors kind of struggle with this, where out external processors just go for it, man. It's like somebody rang a bell, and you're just like, shoom, you know? But prayer is about communing with God. It's about relying upon God. It's about crying out to God. It's about beholding the glory of God, and it's about enjoying God. And not everybody does this the same way. Now, praise God for the people who have that natural gift for speech and that extensive, articulate, like, vocabulary. That oftentimes, that's trained, and it's a skill, and praise God for them. Like, combine that with a verbal processor, and you get somebody whose prayers seem to kind of have a little extra, like, seasoning on them. Like, they just got a little extra sugar as they rise to heaven, right? Like, that's a good thing. But, but then you got another person, though, who loves God with all their heart, but the words feel a bit more out of reach, right? Silence and space, they kind of seem to fill the air more than words. I had a professor in, in seminary, and, and <laughs> I remember him inviting me to his office. He was a great guy. He loved the Lord so much, and he was a professor of New Testament, and this guy was brilliant. Like, I mean, I, have, I had sat in three-hour-long lectures with this guy, and he just could just go off 
on the glory of God and the word of God and all of these things. So he, you know, I actually became pretty good friends with him, and he um, invited me into his office. He's an older man, and uh, he just wanted to pray. And I'm thinking, is he going to teach me something? What's going on? He just wanted to pray. So he, I remember going in there and sitting down, and, you know, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm like, we're going to pray. I'm praying with the doctor, right? Like, let's go. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm like a horse behind a gate. And he sits down, and he goes like this. And I'm like, you asleep? Like, I'm, I'm literally, I literally, I'm alone in this room, and he fell asleep. Like, he's an old man, and I'm literally thinking, like, do I nudge him? Do I, like, knock something off the table? Should I cough? Like, what, what, do I need to get somebody? Should we call for help? And then he just goes, God. And, and I don't have time to kind of give all that took place, but what came out of him were a few very simple words they were so heartfelt and genuine. But there's something about it, and maybe you are like this, maybe you've experienced this, and you know, it's like almost like the words that he's grasping for and groping for, they're not sufficient, and the only thing he can get out is just, thank you, God. Right? Like, I love you. I need you. Thank you for Jesus. Maybe it's just help. And it's filled with these long pauses and silence. And, you know, while some seem to pray in one breath, a litany of petitions come out. Others take multiple breaths just to get out one word. And sometimes it depends on the season you're in. But the measure, and the point here is that, it, that God doesn't measure that prayer by the amount of words. It's the authenticity of the heart. Those prayers may come with tears of joy or sorrow, but they never discount the sweet aroma of that kind of prayer unto the Lord. You see, it's not a competition, though, all right? No matter where you're at on this side, it's not a competition. In fact, I love to pray with both. I, I, I need to pray with both, and so do you. Because these different expressions of prayer are powerful compliments to each other as an expression of the body of Christ. And here's what I mean. Like when I, when I pray with one who's easily able to just rattle off thoughts and petition and words like they're like ringing that bell, you know, it just comes naturally to them and it flows. I find expression to my own thoughts and prayers that I might not otherwise have been able to articulate. Right? Like my soul gets to unify with them, and I find a sense of rest and satisfaction in their articulation. And so I, I say amen in an agreement, and I make their prayer my own. And I almost am like, thank you. You said that the way that I'm trying to say it. Praise God for those people. We need those types of prayers. This is part of praying corporately together. And then in the same way, though, when I pray with the one who seems to just grope and grasp for the right words and even struggle to, to articulate things, I also really deeply connect with that. Like it's, an, it's that outstretched soul that just says, God, I love you and I need you. Right? I tend to be kind of the verbal processor. So sometimes I need to sit down with somebody that just goes, And just yearning, leaning in. Because my soul gets to unify with them, and I, I find that sense of rest and satisfaction there too. Because there's a rest that comes in that silence. There's a peace and an understanding that's being articulated in their yearning. Like it slows my heart down to listen and to rest because I get it. I'm able to agree with them in an authentic amen to every breath and every groan and every sigh that's too deep for words as we all get to lean into the spirit who intercedes on our behalf together. It's the power of praying together. It's the power of corporate prayer. Like there's more happening in those moments than just waiting for words to fill the air. Amen? 
There's a deep and even corporate communion with God that's available to us all in those moments. Like many of you may have even come to Christ and your corporate prayer life just was like, bam. Like it comes to you, everybody's praying. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. It goes around in a circle and it comes to you and you're just like, I don't know what to say. You know, others of you are like, hurry up and say amen so I can start, right? Like you just know you can just, you know. But it's... we need each other. And some of you came and it was just like, you know, praying out loud comes naturally. But then others of you, you struggled. Maybe, maybe you, you still struggle. I want to encourage you to keep struggling. Because those corporate yearnings are not only pleasing to God and not only helpful for you. The church needs to enter into those spaces and places of spiritual grasping for the Lord in prayer also. No matter how mature you consider yourself to be, right? It's a blessing. It's a blessing. You're a blessing. Don't be embarrassed by it. Lean into it. It's good. It's so good. Now, when we talk about prayer, I'm not talking about just offering up words or thoughts to the universe, okay? I'm going to specify here. (laughs) Like, I'm talking about praying in the name of the Lord. It's very important. It's addressed to the very real and very personal king of the universe. He's not just some ethereal and personal being. He's highly relational and the very essence of all that's true. In fact, he's the precondition for truth itself. That's who he is. Right? So that doesn't mean that we've got him all figured out, but it does mean that what he has revealed is absolutely true. And so there's, there's more truth and glory and grace than we can fathom that's available to us, and that's why we want to plumb the depths of who he is. That's why we want to lean into his name that is above all names. It's why we want to listen. It's why we want to dive into his word. Because, so the thing that has set God's people apart from the rest of the world has always been that we are the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, all the way back in Genesis, like immediately after they're kicked out of the garden in Genesis 4, it starts that at just after they're kicked out, chapter 4 of Genesis closes with this phrase. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, there was a distinct difference between the people of God and the people that were not his people. The people of God were those who called upon the name of the Lord. Everybody else either just called upon themselves or something that they're just not quite sure about. But those who call upon the name of the Lord were his people. And so we are a people of prayer. But we're also a people of his word. Right? It's very important. Because you can read his word and not pray. People do it all the time. But to truly be his people, we don't just read his word or even know his word. His word is what reveals his name. It's what reveals his character. It's what reveals who he is. It's what reveals his ways and his purpose and his love and his glory. That's what's in his name. It's in his word. It's in his word that gives us his name and we're introduced to his person. So we don't just read his word, we read it and we pray and we cry out to the one the holy word is pointing us to in his name, not just some ethereal being, okay? Otherwise, you're just a whitewashed tomb. You're just a dry religious intellectual, right? Especially people that are like, well, I'm so spiritual. It's like, well, what are you spiritual about? Who are you praying to? Well, I'm not quite sure. No difference between that person and the professor at UVA or wherever that does not really believe in Jesus, but they've read the Bible 500,000 times, right? You may have the appearance of godliness, but you've denied its power because its power is found in the relationship, and there's no relationship without prayer. So that's why this series on prayer is so crucial. There's nothing wrong with being an intellectual, hear me. Like, praise God for intellectualism, praise God for the, ac- for the academy, academic, Right? I love it. Like, let's exercise and train and lean into all that stuff, right? But it's worthless without personal prayerful revelation. So we don't just read the word. We read the word and we pray it and we say, God, help me enter into this. Draw my heart into this. 
So that's why this morning we're not just going to end our series on prayer. This is going to be like a bridge into the next series because prayer never ends. Prayer isn't just primary, right? Prayer is secondary and tertiary and on and on and first and second and third and fourth and fifth. It's, it's fundamental to who we are because without prayer in his name, we're just dust. But through prayer and his word, God fills our lungs with the very breath of life. So this morning, I want to walk through this, the, or, or the most extensive demonstration of prayer that we have um, from Jesus himself. And it comes from John chapter 17. Now, some of you may have expected, you know, the most extensive prayer um, of Christ to be in Matthew 6, where it's the, you know, quote, the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that one. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. It's that thing that people pray before football games and stuff so they can win. Maybe just me. Grew up in the Bible Belt. It happened. I'm like, y'all don't even know what that means. Both are like, God give us the glory in the win. And it's like, you, are you even, it's to his, him be the glory. Anyway, that's not my notes. Um, but this is the point. Like, so that actually has historically been called the Lord's Prayer, Right? Okay, so it's a great prayer, right? And obviously it's a great prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray it, but it's actually, I would say, not the Lord's Prayer. That's actually a title that was given to it by someone who lived in the ninth century, and I think they got it wrong. Because it's not actually the Lord's Prayer. That's the church's prayer. Jesus has no need to ask God for forgiveness. He's teaching us to do that. That's the church's prayer. So this morning, though, I want to dive into the Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer, which we find here in John 17. It's also known as the High Priestly Prayer, which is also a good name for it. But ultimately, it's the prayer of the Lord. So I only have time to really brush the surface of this prayer this morning, but I want you to see that the layered beauty and fundamental power of this prayer flows directly out of Christ's communion within the Trinitarian Godhead itself. All right? When I mean, what I mean by that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about three persons in one divine nature. If that blows your mind, good. It's supposed to. If you figured that one out, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you're wrong. Because you're not God. That doesn't mean that we don't lean in again to what has been revealed to us about it that is true and powerful and glorious. And it, and it draws us into that glory and makes us go, wow. But you haven't figured it all out. So what I want you to see, though, is that every prayer he prays is the fundamental overflow of his deep communion with and within God in this chapter. And that as he prays for us, he's, he's demonstrating the necessity of true covenant community. And he's inviting us to do likewise. So I want you to picture a spiral here that starts at the center and spirals outward, right? Almost like a tornado that engulfs everything that it comes in contact with. It starts here, right, and then it spirals out. And so I want to show you the three main engulfing spirals of this prayer. And they are the first one, the tightest one at the center, the sort of the, the touchdown point, is his relationship Jesus' relationship with and within the Godhead, okay? The second spiral, going on out, is his relationship with and within his disciples. And then the third spiral, the last one, is his disciples' relationship with and within each other and those who would believe through them. We're going to talk about these. So our mission here at Risen Church is, as we said, to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. And in many ways, this prayer demonstrates that our, missions, our, our mission finds its fundamental source in this prayer as the overflow of the love and the glory of God himself. So here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else, all right? Here's what I want you to get. To share life like Christ, you must be sharing life in Christ. Let me say that again. To share life like Christ, you must be sharing life in Christ. So what does that mean? 
Turn with me to John 17. We're going to read through this prayer in verse 1 through 26. And as we do, I'm going to point out these three spirals of this Trinitarian glory tornado of a prayer. All right? And then we're going to tie it all together as it applies to us. Now, again, you may feel like you're in a whirlwind already. Right? You may feel like you're just like, what is happening? There's so much here. There is definitely a lot going on in this passage. All right? But my hope is that we all get drawn up into it and go deeper into relationship with him instead of getting blown away from it. All right? So it's going to take, again, though, some intentionality to look in and lean in. All right? So let's lean in. You guys with me? Here we go. Verse 1. John 17. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All right, so... I want you to picture the center point of this Trinitarian tornado touching down upon the earth in Christ, okay? So as God becomes man and he lives a life we couldn't live and he indwells creation and he does so with the very love and the glory of the Godhead itself, like perfect unity, perfect glory, perfect love, the perfect image of God in Christ Jesus dwelling with us. And he's redeeming all that it is to be human. So knowing who it is who's praying this prayer is crucial for understanding what it means. N.T. Wright put it like this. I love this quote. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? He's talking about Jesus. That fire has become flesh. That Life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Verse 5. And so this is... This is who's speaking, is God himself in the flesh. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so he calls upon that sort of like intra-Trinitarian glory that's existed for eternity since before the foundation of the earth. And he's calling upon that relationship to be displayed in its fullness that, 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 that was before the foundation of the earth to be displayed in its unmitigated fullness before the created world. And so remember, he's praying here about going to the cross and the resurrection. Because as we're going to see in a moment, it's through the cross and resurrection that the glory Jesus had with the Father since before the world existed is ultimately displayed for everyone. So here we have the first spiral, right, which is the strongest, okay? And again, to use the metaphor of a whirlwind or a tornado, which, by the way, uh, it's a biblical illustration for the presence of God throughout the Bible. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Um, Remember that God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. If you've read through the book of Job, that's how he meets him. And then he leads the Israelites through the desert with a similar image, almost like a tornado of fire by night and a pillar of cloud or smoke by day. And it kind of has this deep allusion to God's engulfing and all-consuming glory. It's manifested in his presence. And, of course, there's the prophet Elijah. If you remember this, um, he never really tasted death, but was mysteriously drawn up into the whirlwind of God's glory. So we've seen this metaphor for him or this illustration of God's glory through a a sort of a whirlwind already. So it seems fitting to use this as a kind of metaphor to flesh out this power um, in this prayer. So if you know much about a tornado, it's, again, the winds that are closest to the center that are the strongest, right? And so they draw you deeper in and higher up. That's what happens. You see it come out of the sky, and it comes down, and whatever it comes into contact with, it sucks it right up into it, okay? And so this is where, again, prayer starts, 
It's deep and it's intimate. And it's personal communion within the Godhead. There's an expression here of what's been called the intra-Trinitarian love. And it's all based upon the glory and the love of God himself. That's the focal point here. Also, spoiler alert, this prayer begins and ends with the glory and love of God in Christ. Which is another reason why I like the image of the tornado here. Because, you know, what we're first encountered by is what we're ultimately sucked up or drawn up into. Some have called this like a glory sandwich. I like tornado better. Right? So that's what we're met by his glory and we're drawn into his glory. Deeper in and higher up into the glory and the love of God in Christ Jesus. His glory and love are at the beginning and at the end because he is the Alpha and he is the Omega. And he's inviting, him, he's inviting all of us into himself. Right? And so I'll show you more of what I mean in a minute. But let's go to the next spiral. So if the first spiral then is that communion within God himself, then verse 6 um, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay, so here's the second spiral, right? Like, who is God? What is his glory like? What is his character like? What's his nature and love like? What does true life in God Almighty look like? What's the name of God? Well, it looks like Jesus, which is why his name is the name above all names. And so the second spiral of this prayer, or this prayer tornado, is about Christ's relationship with and within his disciples. And so it flows directly out of the first spiral, which is Christ's relationship with and within the Godhead, and it moves to his relationship with and within his disciples. Do you see this? And so the second prayer spiral engulfs the disciples into the love of God in Christ, and it draws them deeper in and higher up unto the glory of God in Christ in deeper relationship with him. Listen to his prayer for his disciples here in verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Again, everything in the second spiral flows out of the first. Everything about Christ's relationship with his disciples flows out of his relationship with God the Father because that's what he's drawing them into. Everything Jesus does is the overflow of his relationship with God. This speaks directly to us as a people. This speaks directly to us as his people because our lives and prayers are caught up in and flow out of the whirlwind of God's glory. So if we want to share life like Christ, we got to be sharing life in Christ. Otherwise, you're just talking about theories and conjectures. Like there's no real whirlwind of glory for people to be sucked into. Like when you're just pointing them to some empty intellectualism or philosophical way of life, like what do you do? There's nothing there. You're just going to get up, you're just going to find yourself in arguments. You're trying to like win. But when you are beholding the king of glory, you don't just witness and testify. You worship, right? Like when you testify, make it personal. Like you're not God's only defender of Christianity, right? You're a witness of the goodness of a God you've tasted and seen and beheld and been saved by. When you testify, make it about Jesus. Bring the glory tornado to the table. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All right, there it is again. Deep unity, deep intimacy, all flowing out of the first spiral of God's love and glory in Christ. So he's not praying here for the lost world. He's praying for those who've been sucked into the glory tornado in the name of Jesus. They've experienced it, and they're drawing everybody else around them into it. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's so much here. But Jesus, I want you to see that Jesus is praying that his disciples would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. (laughs) Think about that. Like, what is his joy? It's that first spiral. He wants them to be drawn into that first spiral, the joy of knowing God, enjoying God. It exposes everything else as a counterfeit. It's the joy of being drawn deeper in and higher up into the glory and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the second spiral, and it flows directly out of the first. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what's he talking about here? He says they're not of the world. They've been redeemed. They're part of the whirlwind. The whirlwind that's beholding. The whirlwind that's beholden to and founded upon the love and the glory of God and Jesus Christ. They've been set apart. So he's praying, don't pull the tornado up. So he's not saying like, oh, okay, all right, guys, you've prayed the prayer, you're in, now, detach, check out, hide. Not at all. He prays, don't pull the tornado up, let it wreak absolute havoc upon the kingdom of darkness. Let the love and the glory of God reign in and through them upon the earth and storm the gates of hell like a tornado. That's what he's saying. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one who would tempt them out of the whirlwind. Protect them from the evil one who wants to get their eyes off of the source, off of the first spiral. Take them out of the whirlwind of glory and love. Like Protect them from the enemy who wants to tempt them out of that covenant community of glory that's beholding him and saying, look how good he is. And bring them and draw them into a place of isolation and ineffectiveness. Because that's what's on the outskirts of the whirlwind. You're just sitting there looking at yourself. And you know what happens on the outskirts? Same thing that happens to a lamb on the outskirts of the flock. Devoured. Because that's what the enemy does. He tries to pick off the fringe. Those who aren't connected to the source, those sheep who aren't close to the shepherd. He's prowling around like a ravenous beast looking for somebody to devour, looking for someone who's more concerned with the ways of this world or themselves than the love and the glory of God. He's looking for someone who's captivated by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Easy pickings. He's looking for somebody on the outskirts of the whirlwind because he can't even get close to the all-consuming fire of God's glory. He can't get in there. Like when you're caught up in the tornado of God's glory, it's like a category seven to the strongholds of the enemy. He can't get in. He comes near and just demolished. So what does that look like? What does it look like to get caught up in the tornado of his glory and love? Well, Jesus prays for it. Look at verse 17. Sanctify. Say sanctify. Sanctify. That means set apart, right? Set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Say truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, which also means to set apart, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There's a whole lot of setting apart going on here, right? It's almost as though he's blowing through and bringing people up and out and into himself for a greater and higher purpose. 
They're set apart. They're repositioned into God's love for his glory. Again, you've been set apart from this world by being drawn up into the glory tornado of his love. This is what Jesus is praying for. And how does it happen? By being captivated by his word. Again, what's at the center of it all? Jesus. And we know that Jesus himself is the word of God made flesh, according to John 1. Right? And so we behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus, the name above all names. We soak in his word and we do it with radical intentionality. We do it with a discipline that's like life itself. Like we draw near to him and we pray because we, if we don't, then we suffocate because it's our breath. And we come to the table of fellowship because if we don't, we starve and we wither away. Because this is what it's about. That's why it's so important to dive into the Word of God, to not just read your Bible, but to pray through your Bible. To let His glory just draw you into that whirlwind of His love every single time. And here's the deal. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. The Bible is hard to understand a lot of the time. Right? Like, let's be honest. It's difficult. Like, even Peter says it's hard to understand what Paul's talking about. The Bible itself says the Bible's hard to understand. Right? And yet, you know, I, I, I think it's so oftentimes we try to water down the difficulty of reading the Bible. And I think that's a mistake. Right? Like, hear me. I, I get the why behind the what for trying to water the difficulty down. I really do. Like, we want to make it accessible to people. We want to make it manageable. We want to meet people where they are. Trust me. Guys, I've pastored hundreds and, and ministered to thousands of youth and young adults in my time as a pastor. That's not an exaggeration. And I understand fully wanting to make the Bible more accessible and manageable and meet people where they are. But there's a delicate balance here. Because the way too often we tend to see Jesus and his word as something that's supposed to be convenient. And we present him that way. And we, we present it that way. We present it as like this thing that's just supposed to be convenient. And if it's not, then you know, eh, it's not that important. In an attempt to meet people where they are, man, it's so easy to deprioritize pressing into his word and presence. Jen Wilkin put it like this. When we hand them a vision of Christian discipleship devoid of earnest study, it's likely we do more than just shortchange them on their ability to learn. We shortchange them on the process of becoming a mature disciple. We may also shortchange the Bible as not actually relevant without hooks or gimmicks or as not actually accessible without spoon feeding. More concerning, we communicate a tacit value statement. Students understand that what is important is worth our time and effort to attain. They regularly invest long hours, not just in their schoolwork, but in their sports team, music lessons, dance classes, or jobs. When the church says, we know you're busy, just invest a little time in the Bible, students understandably infer Christian discipleship falls below their other commitments. Since it requires so little of them, it must not be that important. When it comes to making disciples, guys, it's a team effort. This isn't something we outsource to the professional pastors. And this isn't just about students. This is not just about kids, right? This is about all disciples, right? This is about everybody. It applies to every kind of disciple, whether it's your kids or your coworkers. Hear me, if you're the one God has strategically placed in their lives to be their primary discipler, which, by the way, if they're your children, you have been. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what kind of programs they attend. It's, it, it's going to always require that they see somebody up close and personal who's been engaged by the whirlwind 
Like they need to see someone who's truly been caught up in God's love and his glory and beholding it. They need to be embraced by someone who's been embraced. They need to be equipped by someone who's been equipped. They need to be empowered by someone who's been empowered. They need to be encouraged by someone who's been encouraged. Often we think we just engage and then go, okay, good luck. I'll be over here. I don't want to press the issue too much. And then they just sit there and they go, oh, well, that must not be important. I'll see you later. And I'm not just talking about our kids. I'm talking about society. Because this is the word of God. If it matters, it matters. He's not a side note. Again, there's a balance here because we want to make it accessible. We want to meet them where they are. And Jesus does this so delicately and genuinely and authentically and perfectly. But he's called us to do the same. Now, God is calling us to partner together in making disciples, but that doesn't mean he's calling you to pass the responsibility of those he's strategically placed in your life onto other people, right? That doesn't mean that you're better than them, right? To disciple somebody doesn't mean that you're like a higher rank than them. (laughs) That's not what it means. Because we're coming alongside one another and we're pointing to Jesus and we're saying, I'm not making a disciple of John, I'm making a disciple of Jesus. And we're encouraging one another and pushing them to him. And so it simply means that you've been called to point one another to him. To, to get caught up in the whirlwind and anyone who comes near you is, gets either pushed out or caught up. This is what it looks like. So if God's placed someone in your life that's called and, and, and he's calling you um, to invite them into the whirlwind of his glory and grace, maybe you're like, okay, I even know who this person is. I just don't even know where to start. Like, I don't even know what to do. And maybe I've lived my life this certain way, and I, I'm just like, what do I do, right? Then start like Jesus. Just start with prayer. Right? Tap into the source of it all. Tap into the first spiral, and then let his love and glory engulf you and everyone around you. It's never too late to ever start that. Which leads me to the third spiral of this prayer, which is for those who would believe in him through the testimony of his disciples. Jesus is praying here for his church. I love this. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he talking about? You. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. Like, you're in the Bible. There you are. I don't ask for these only, meaning his disciples, because he's talking about his real disciples that he was living on the earth with in that time, okay? And then in this verse here, he says, I'm not just asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they, in fact, these words are from John. He wrote it down, right? He was there. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So again, this is like the the outer spiral or the point of contact that the world has with the whirlwind of God's love and glory in Christ. Like this is part of what it means for the church to be the body of Christ upon the earth. Because this point of contact is his church. Like, we are the connection point God has commissioned to draw the lost world into his glory and grace. Again, look how interconnected all this is. The source and substance of it all is the love and the glory of God. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, what a prayer. Everything flows directly out of the first spiral, which is the love of God in Christ. Everything. All of it. It's what fuels the entire whirlwind of the kingdom of heaven. And anyone that encounters this kind of whirlwind, anybody that comes close to contact with it, will either get demolished or drawn up into his love and glory and the grace of Christ. And isn't that what happens when you encounter Jesus? Isn't that what happens to everybody who encountered Jesus? He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. They either submitted to him as the king of eternity or they crucified him. 
right? That's what happens. So 24, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there it is again. Like, what's the point of Jesus' prayer? He's longing for you and me. Like, this is his desire, and this is his joy, is to be with you, or really, rather, for us to be with him. Like, this is what it's all about. Now, pay attention here. This is really important. It's not just for salvation. This is a little different. It's not just about salvation. So often we hear these verses or we think about the Great Commission and we think it's only about salvation. Right? Like, like I, don't get me wrong. Like, hell is bad. I don't like hell. I don't want to go to hell. You don't want to go to hell? Me neither. Like, let's not go to hell. Right? But the point here isn't about being saved. It's about the glory of God being revealed in Jesus Christ. Because heaven is about beholding the glory of God in all things. It's the redemption of all things, and everything is shouting out his glory. Right? And so, if you don't want the glory of God, and you're caught up in your own glory, then guess what? You don't want heaven. That's why nobody in hell wants to be in heaven. Because heaven's all about the glory of Jesus. See this? That's why when we come to him, he transforms our very affections and desires to long for him and his glory and his goodness. And we get caught up into that whirlwind of his love and glory. That's the power of it. Like that's what it's all about is to be caught up unto God and see the glory of God in Christ in its unmitigated fullness. It's that eternal intra-Trinitarian love that the Father has for the Son erupting in unmitigated glory forever and ever. And we're drawn up into it and we even get to experience for eternity that glory and relationship and community. That's what this whirlwind's drawing us up into. It's not just about being saved from hell. It's about being drawn into the eternal tornado of God's glorious love in Christ Jesus. Like, if you think Christianity is only about being saved, then you've missed the point entirely. It's about the eternal glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, not a mantra of incantation you prayed when you were 13. Is your heart desiring him? If not, he can change that, and he will change that. You can't do it on your own, but if you ask him, I, I'm telling you, he'll do it. He will do it. Verse 25. He's prayed for it. He prayed for you. Verse 25. <laughs> oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So this is the kind of community that Jesus himself is crying out for on behalf of his church. He's praying for the church here. And contrary to popular belief, Jesus is not at the right hand of the Father wringing his hands going, oh man, if the church would just shape up. It's not what he's doing. Like, I hear that all the time, man. Like, the church needs to, the church is so bad. Like, we're ruining it or doing, listen. It's over 2,000 years of kingdom advancement. And Jesus is crushing it. That tornado has been blasting through this world. His kingdom has been advancing hard. Don't you believe that mess? His kingdom is on the move. Aslan is on the move. Right? He's not disappointed. He just sees something more than what we see. I know that's not what a lot of people would have you believe, but if you see the church as Jesus sees it, he sees the true church, he sees the sons and the daughters of the Most High King that are not defined by four walls, but are defined by hearts on fire with that consuming love and glory of Jesus Christ that demolishes any stronghold in its path. He sees the whirlwind of his glory and grace just wrecking through the enemy. He sees his kingdom growing and expanding and the gates of hell crashing down. This world doesn't get it because they've missed the whirlwind of his glory and grace. But the way we put it on display 
is by beholding his glory together and letting it draw us deeper in and higher up. Remember John 13, 34 and 35? Jesus says to them in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, right? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35 says, this is how they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Is that what he's praying here too? Right? This is the gospel. And I didn't give Katie that last verse. It's my fault. <laughs> but this is the gospel, right? That God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, right? Not just one day when we die, but it starts now as we're filled with his spirit and we're drawn deeper in, in and higher up into his glory. As heaven comes down to earth in and through his people, eternal life. Starting now, moving forward, though we're still physically in the world, we're not of the world because we've been caught up in his glory. We're physically here, but spiritually we're risen in Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, according to Ephesians. Like my prayer for risen church is that you would pray like Jesus and share life with each other and our city and beyond like Jesus. But in order to share life like Christ, we've got to share life in Christ. So pray. Pray on your own. Tap into his love and glory and grace and pray with one another. Pray for one another and share this life that you have in Christ with the isolated world around you. If we make disciples through authentic gospel community, but if you're not meaningly, meaningfully engaged, embraced, encouraged, equipped, and empowered in and through gospel community, you might make a convert or two. You might even impact somebody, but it's hard to draw somebody into discipleship if you're not in it yourself. That happens through gospel community because God's primary plan for fulfilling the Great Commission is the local church. It's what we do. It's not an event we attend. It's a people we belong with and are commissioned alongside of. This is why prayer is so primary. This is why we intercede before we interfere. This is why we pray to the Lord of the harvest before we go into the harvest, to catch his heart, to catch his heart for the nations, for the people around us. This is why Risen Church isn't just an event you attend, it's the people we belong with. It's a covenant community commissioned by Jesus himself to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. Let's pray.